0: Welcome to another inspirational message from Dean Community Church, Gateshead. For more information about Dean visit www.chowdean.org.uk. We hope you enjoy the podcast. It would be fair to say... The last few weeks have been pretty tough. Um, Losing my own mum so suddenly, unexpectedly, even though she was 90, was a huge shock. And the last two weeks, uh, James and I have been helping Audrey nurse Bob. Seeing somebody in bed day after day presumably taking their last breaths is very difficult but it's also a very timely reminder of the fragility of life and how we do only have one life and how we use that life and how we are remembered is so very, very important. Paul Badham's last week spoke on the story of the rich man and Lazarus and he reminded us of just that. What we do in this life matters. What we do in this life matters. So it seems very apt that the next title in our series of Created for Significance is called How to Invest Your One and Only Life. Now, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to read it to you. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Some of the Bible is very, very difficult to understand, or I find it so. Perhaps you do too. I'm sure I can't be the only one who tries to shy away from the bits that are hard work. And lean towards the bits that are more easygoing. But that verse is really clear. All scripture. That means the bits that are easy and the bits that are difficult. This morning, we're going to look at a difficult bit. It's another parable. But if I'm absolutely honest with you, it's one that I would much rather have avoided talking on. Over the years, it's caused quite a bit of controversy. During my research for this morning, I read various interpretations and commentaries on the parable, some of which were very far-fetched. But in the end, though, I think if you take a step back from it, it is actually a very simple story, and it has an awful lot to teach both you and me. So what's the parable I'm talking about? It's the parable of the shrewd manager. Now, over the past few weeks, we've seen and and heard Jesus tell several parables. There was the banquet where everyone was invited. There was the lost sheep and the lost coin. There was the prodigal son. And there was the rich man and Lazarus. These were all aimed at various folk who were in the listening crowd. The general public, who needed to hear about God's love for them, and the Pharisees, who thought themselves, are cut above the rest. This parable was also for those listening in the crowd. But it seems to me that it was aimed primarily at those who professed themselves to be followers of Jesus. But always, there's always a message in there for everyone. So let's read it together. It can be found in Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, having read that parable, can you understand why I was rather hesitant to look at it? There seems on the surface of things to be a lot of contradictions or things that you just wouldn't expect Jesus to say. Oh, that's what I thought when I read it again. Many commentaries have tried to work out who the characters in this story represent, just like with the other parables. Take, for example, the prodigal son, so beautifully explained the other week by John. It clearly shows God represented as the loving father. You and me is the prodigal son, and the older brother, those that are self-righteous, possibly pharisaical, and think themselves above making mistakes. You can kind of see how that fits nicely, can't you? But you can't really do that with this parable. It is much easier to understand when you realize it's just a story, to demonstrate a single point, one that we'll come to in a bit. But first of all, I want to have a proper look at the characters anyway. None of them, and I mean none of them, were shining examples. They were, in varying degrees, incompetent, Corrupt, or a mixture of both? So who are the main players then? Well, first of all, we've got the master. At the time Jesus told this story, it was very common for men of significant wealth to hire a manager to look after their land, their crops, their food, and sometimes even to manage their households. It was actually a bit of a status symbol to have a manager run things for you. This master was no different, but he was certainly not wise. Now, why do I say that? Let's look at the evidence. He hired a manager and then he just left him to it. He didn't supervise him. He didn't check up on him. And quite honestly, he only showed an interest when things began to filter back to him that the manager was not doing a good job. And on finding out that the manager was doing a rubbish job of things, he calls the manager in and he fires him. And then he asks him to get his books and give an account of his actions. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's back to front. You'd expect him to give an account, say, come on, what you've been doing with my money, with my wealth, and then fire him if you weren't satisfied with what he'd said. That seems the more logical way of doing things, doesn't it? Doing it this way round gives the manager a chance to exact revenge, get his own back, cause a bit of mischief, and in t- today's vernacular, he probably diss the manager on Instagram and Facebook and start a media frenzy, and then siphon off the money into a Swiss bank account. The master was incredibly naive, and he clearly didn't know or understand how to manage staff. So I think he was pretty incompetent himself. But then we move on to the manager. Now, at the start of all this, I think the manager was just a rubbish manager. I think he was downright lazy, and I think he was incompetent. He'd not looked after his master's assets, and he'd been wasteful with them. He hadn't been careful with his master's assets. Now, when he was fired, though, all that changes. If you want to see what someone's true character is like, put their back up against a wall. It sure comes out. On the way back from being fired to, to get the books, the manager has chance to think. What's he going to do? He doesn't want to get his hands dirty and actually do some work. What cunning plan can he come up with to secure his future? And then he has a stroke of genius. He decides to create a network of friends that all will owe him a favour. They will all have to help him out and if they don't, he will be able to snitch on them to everybody else. The times in which they lived were very much based on doing the honourable thing and these friends would be obliged to help him and if they didn't, he could spread rumours about them not being honourable. So what does he do? He calls everyone in, one by one, and he does them a favor by reducing their debt, the amount they owe the master. Now, I didn't fully realize just how much the debt was and the money involved until I started researching this. One commentary I read stated that this manager was offering the dream deal to the debtors. Using today's modern farming techniques, a discount of 200 bushels of wheat, because that's what he gave them, would have been the equivalent of nearly six acres worth of produce. Back then, without all the genetically modified crops and all the gizmos and things that they have today, it probably would have been significantly more and would have taken a long time to harvest and produce. And a discount of 450 gallons of olive oil, well, I calculated with each tree only producing approximately one gallon of olive oil a year, he was talking about the produce of 450 trees for a whole year. That's a lot of olive oil. These were not trifling amounts. He was doing these debtors a significant service, and he was getting revenge on his master Big time. And at the same time, making the debtors really owe him a favor. The manager had moved from lazy and incompetent to corrupt and being a thief. So that's the second one. But what about the debtors? What about the debtors? Now, the third group in this story, I think, sometimes get a little bit overlooked. But do you know what? They weren't innocent either. They would have known fine well that the debt being written off, well, it must have been a bit dodgy, surely. Did they bother to check with the master that it was above board? Did they question why the discount had been given? No, of course they didn't. They signed on the dotted line all too quickly. They didn't care about the legitimacy of the deal, just as long as they were benefiting. And they really were. They may have thought, well, it's going to cost me something in the long run, but hey, this is too good a deal to turn down. Take the deal now and pay later. None of these were good examples. The master, the manager, or the debtors. It shows, I think, only too well how the majority of a lot of people live their lives. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And often in business, people can only too, be only too quick to be climbing over each other to get on. They're all out for themselves. And you know, even if people aren't quite that ruthless, and some people aren't, a lot of people only think about this life and what they can get out of it, feathering their own nests. After all, you only live once, don't you? And you have to think ahead and make the most of it just like the shrewd manager. So, why did Jesus tell this story? And to my mind, more importantly, why did Jesus seem to commend the manager for what on the surface of things was pretty bad behavior? Well, the answers are there in the passage. Let's have a look at verse 8 again. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. What was Jesus saying? To understand, you need to know who he is talking about. Who are the people of this world and who are the people of light? When he was talking about the people of this world in this context, he's talking about people who don't know God. People who haven't come to Jesus and asked for forgiveness of their sins and committed their lives to him. And the children of light as those that have and do know God. Now, look back at that verse again. Keep that in mind. Who are the people of this world and who are the people of light? The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus is simply saying that the manager was shrewd because he was planning ahead for his future, not because he was corrupt, lazy, None of those things. He was just shrewd in planning ahead. It's a simple point like that. And he is saying quite simply that his own followers, the children of the life, are not thinking long term. And that this story demonstrates that even corrupt, incompetent, and lazy people do it better than his followers. But what is it that we should be planning for? What are we getting wrong? He answers this. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let's make it plain. Jesus is not saying, not saying you can buy your way into heaven or anything remotely like that. He is saying, use what you have, monetary wealth, and your gifts in spreading the good news of the gospel to win souls. For Christ so that when this life and all that you have is gone you will meet them in heaven so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings you'll be welcomed by the people that have come to know Jesus as a result of your actions it's actually very simple when you think about it in these terms so what can we learn from this are we being shrewd with the gifts that God has given you and me both our monetary gifts and our time. Are we being shrewd? How are we using this one and only life? Are we planning ahead and remembering that there is an eternal future facing us? Or are we living just for the here and the now? There is another story in the Bible that Jesus told. You can find it in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will you get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. I have been reminded only too clearly that life can end very, very suddenly when you least expect it and sitting beside somebody who is dying is a very, very, very stark reminder of the fragility of life. So how are we investing our one and only life? What do you spend all your time, your money, and your energy on? I used to work for somebody many years ago who was absolutely fanatical about Newcastle United football team. I mean, fanatical he went to every away game he went to every home game and he had his seat and all he ever talked about was newcastle united he died when he was 42 of a sudden heart failure i can remember going into work on a monday morning and think did newcastle win at the weekend They did, okay, we're going to have a good week. It's going to be a good Monday. If they didn't, the team would go in thinking, oh, crumbs, what's it going to be like? And one year, because they'd lost, he wouldn't let us put the Christmas decorations up or turn the lights on. It was that bad. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. At the church weekend away, Peter Kerridge talked about folk who only come to church every few weeks. They come because they ought to go, because they haven't been for a while. And he talked a lot about the lack of commitment. Now, we're not talking about people who are ill or working. We're talking about people who could be here if they wanted to be. Something else is more important to them. A hobby or a pastime. Or they get an invite to go out with friends. I've heard it said, you know, oh, I just need a break from church. Thank God. Goodness God doesn't need a break from us. Thank goodness God doesn't need a break from us. Jesus was saying that as children of light we need to invest our lives for him and for his kingdom. He demands commitment, not apathy. God shows just what he thinks about those that are described as lukewarm, neither hot or cold in Revelation three, talking about the Church of Laodicea, he says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold i 'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Those are pretty harsh words aren 't they? Those are pretty harsh words. Jesus when telling the parable of the shrewd manager concludes like this No one can serve two masters either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve both God and money Matthew 6:21 for where your treasure is there will your heart be also This is not meant to be a comfortable, feel-good, cuddly waddly message. I want you to go home challenged. I want you to remember the parable of the shrewd manager, and I want you to remember what it teaches us. We have one and only life, and how we invest it matters. We need this morning to take a good, hard look at ourselves and we need to answer some real questions. If you're not a Christian this morning, how are you investing your one and only life? Is everything about the here and the now? Have you thought about what will happen when you die? How are you going to answer God? when he asks, what have you done with your life? And if you are a Christian, what has this parable said to you? What has it taught you? Are you completely committed to his service? You may be committed in what you do, but do you serve joyfully out of love for your saviour? Or do you do it with a grumbling spirit? And I'm fed up of this. Do you think, oh, I hope I don't have to go to church on Sunday. I hope it gets cancelled. I hope there's an excuse for not going. Do you serve joyfully? Are you putting God first? Are you feathering your nest in this life and forgetting the one to come? What are you doing with your money and the gifts, however small that God has given you? What are you doing to win eternal friends and save souls for eternity? Are you lukewarm? Where is your treasure? As we leave today, each one of us needs to ask this question. How am I investing my one and only life? Thank you. This is the end of this message. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more about our church, please visit www.chowdean.org.uk and please take a minute to rate our podcast on iTunes.